0: Welcome to Behind the Brands. So you found us, (laughs) well done you. Our little podcast, all about the fashion industry. Let me just tell you about the host and the creator of this podcast. The guy's from the UK and his name is Warren Parker Mills. Warren's literally worked with some of the best people in the business and met some incredible brands along the way. Now he feels it's time to kind of do things a little differently. He'll be catching up with amazing storytellers from across the globe as they share some of those unwritten secrets that they've managed to figure out for themselves. From brands you'll recognize to small artisan creators that have mastered their craft. You'll hear about their collections, sales, and their ongoing quest for sustainability. So if you're an aspiring designer, an influencer, or just a massive fan of listening to Fascinating Conversation, stay right where you are. Cheers Paul
1: and hello listener. It's me again. Welcome, welcome to the podcast and if this is your first time, thanks very much for taking time out to listen to one of my episodes. Um, This week I'm talking to a guy called Justin Smith and he's a brilliant milliner. Um, who seems to have the ability of basically putting his creative hands to pretty much anything and making wonderful things happen. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Um, I found it so, so fascinating. It's something that I really didn't have a tremendous amount of insight to previously. And hopefully after this conversation, you will also be a little bit more informed. And as per usual, I will see you on the other side. Hey, Justin, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Are you all right? Are you good today? Yeah, I'm very well. Thanks very much. Good man. Good man. Well, listen, I've been chatting away to my guests in the intro and um, I gave them a little bit of an overview of what you're up to. Um, Do you want to just give us when you're in a bar or a pub or something and someone says, what do you do? What's your answer, mate? How do you uh, how do you explain what you do? Because it's really interesting. (laughs)
2: I'm a milliner basically a, milliner. I'm
1: a, a bespoke milliner so
2: I make hats but um, on a one-to-one basis with private clients and for special projects
1: Wow. Okay. So we're going to dig a little bit d- deeper into that and find out how you started getting in that. Because it is a very, um, it's a really interesting one, this. I don't think, well, we've definitely not had a milliner on the podcast before. So um, I know I'm interested to hear a little bit more about it. I'm sure the audience is as well. So where are you based now? Where's, um, where do you work from? So at the moment, I'm based in London, in Islington.
2: I have a shop and I have a showroom wow. um, in a little place called De Beauvoir, which is just on the border of Hackney.
1: Okay, okay. Are you from London originally, or are you from somewhere else? Or?
2: No, I've been in London 25 years, but I'm originally from Devon. A okay. little, little um, kind of estuary village called Topsham, just outside Exeter.
1: Yeah, I know Topsham. I know mm. Topsham. So just down the road from me, I'm in Somerset, so not very far at all. So, So what was it like growing up as a kid in Devon? How did you find that? It was great, actually.
2: I mean, I, you know, it was super nice. to have. We grew up in a bit of a country lane and growing up on an estuary was really gorgeous. with Lots of migrating birds. And my nice. dad used to take us out a lot to the beaches and stuff. So, you know, yeah. Devon is a wonderful place to grow up, I think.
1: Yeah. Kid. Yeah. So, no, um, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's beautiful down there. And what about um, you've got brothers and sisters? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I've got a couple of uh, two brothers. I'm the middle one.
1: Right. OK. Yeah. OK. And what do they do, just out of interest? Are they in the creative side of things or not? I would, I would
2: definitely consider them creative. Yeah, my younger brother is a mechanic. He runs his mm-hmm. own garage. So he kind of did an apprenticeship in the garage and ended up buying it. And now he, he owns it and runs it. Wow. And my older brother is a Lego collector fanatic sculptor.
1: lego fanatic sculptor
2: yes so so he used to like love lego when he was little and went into accounting but just really didn't particularly get on with that very well so he continued to do lego all his life and after doing i suppose 10 years or so of kind of accounting jobs he kind of um managed to turn his lego hobby into a career so amazing yeah so he opened a shop and sells a lot online and is one of the biggest kind of lego you know collectors in the whole of the uk he's got the most amount of different types of pieces or something
1: goodness something. me i've never heard of anything quite like that before yeah, that's yeah, incredible yeah, there's a lot of them out
2: there actually <laughs> is that um, yeah and we've collaborated on a few projects in the past as well where i've wow. done certain projects he's can we did a massive great lego bowler
1: hat for like a london phone box once and <laughs> oh my gosh that's so cool yeah, that's sorry. so so cool well if you listen if you've got any photographs of that i'd love to put them on the um on the Facebook page that would be great I'd love to show everybody that because that's re- that sounds really really cool so, yeah, so so you you grew up in Devon and um what was it like as a kid I mean do you have many friends were you always into creativity or how did it go yeah, I was always quite independent, I would say, and very creative.
2: So, mm-hmm. my brothers were kind of a bit more classic boys and liked to play golf and snooker and all that kind of stuff with my dad mm-hmm. and my granddad. And I was always the kind of crazy creative one nobody could quite get a handle <laughs> on, bit of a renegade, bit of a rebel.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and, um, and I guess, you know, I was always really independent. So I wasn't like a person that liked to hang out a lot with a, a big groups of people. I'd yeah. much rather be kind of going off by myself, doing lots of different things. And I've always been creative from a very young age. Yeah, So I yeah. would always ask for like, for my birthday presents, I would want candle making kits and embroidery kits. And I would cool. hang out with my nan doing loads of cooking. And, you know, it was always for me interesting manipulating materials and discovering yeah. new things and even if i was doing the gardening i would be very spatially aware of of how to do things and how to nurture things and you know it's just always wow. been part of the kind of person that i am
1: that sounds so cool that's so yeah. cool and brilliant actually as a kid i mean i was in a conversation the other day and we were talking about kind of losing a lot of that really you know there's a lot of you know those traditional things cooking knitting sewing you know, how many kids learn to sew these days, you know? And I think when you look at the bigger picture about the industry and we're, you know, we're talking about sustainability and repairing and recycling and all those types of things, you know, those are the skills that we need to be able to pass on for people to obviously, you know, adhere to to what everyone's trying to uh, promote. So they are skills, unfortunately, which which are not in abundance. So it's a bit of a shame really, but we will do our bit, Justin, we will do yeah. our bit. I hear a not
2: that they don't teach it in schools anymore and I do as much as I can to kind of like teach little ones and do yeah. workshops with with small people and I'm always getting involved in trying to because of creativity kind of pours out of me it's really mm. nice to be able to pass that on and share that with with the younger generation who are kind of like to get them inspired and to get their hands into doing anything and to not be afraid of kind of if something breaks, trying to fix it rather than just, you know, buying a new
1: one. Yeah, so, for sure. You know, yeah, know, like, that's really cool. That's really cool. And what did you do after school then? What, what happened after school? So I wasn't particularly
2: academic at school. So I used to like always spend my lunch breaks in the woodwork room and the metalwork room and (laughs) doing art and things. So I would always like find my way to do creativity in my spare time. Mm -hmm. And then when I left school, because I wasn't particularly academic, everyone thought that I would be good to go on to be a chef. So I studied chefing for a couple of years. And at that time, I had got a job when I was about 14, washing dishes in a pub. Mm -hmm. And uh, within two years, I was kind of head chef at the weekends in this pub, which was about a couple of miles from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. So um, that was a natural progression to start with. And then after about the first year, I was kind of loving the creativity of it. I was doing a lot of baking and lots of wedding cakes and lots of super fancy kind of artistic stuff. Yeah. The actual idea of being a chef all my life. I enjoyed the waitering side of it actually more and the human contact with people Mm. and you know having contact with people through a job so I was relating to people while doing something for them I really enjoyed so actually the catering um, department was actually part of the hairdressing department in Exeter College where I was studying Mm. and after the second year of catering I was like not I really was kind of not Thinking it was the right thing to do. And I used to spend a lot of time going and getting my hair done in the hair salon. And mm-hmm. um, in that, nearly at the end of the final year, I went and Cut my hair really short and dyed it bright orange, and they actually wanted to kick me out of college <laughs> because they were like, "You can't do silver service waitering with bright orange hair; it's not a look." And I had lots no of piercings and you know that kind of thing, so I was quite out there with my look. Yeah. So then, in the summer holidays, I went and um, spent three months hanging out in the hair salon where I used to go, and I just <laughs> love the environment, loved the people, love the creativity. Just wanted to get my hands stuck into actually playing with hair as a medium. Yeah. And then just found, a you know, a really amazing kind of creative platform where I could kind of sh- show my sense of fashion, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always been interested in style and always been that kid at school that was wearing vintage clothes and always had hats on and always had blazers on. And, you know, finding different things to wear that was always a bit out of the box. But then I convinced the teacher I could only train for one more year at school go school at college um, and the hairdressing was actually a three-year course but it was condensed into a one-year course for adults so oh, right. I had, like three interviews with the lady who was the hairdressing teacher and she was a bit not totally convinced to start with that I would be able to manage but I convinced her that I, I really wanted to do the course and mm-hmm. she allowed me to do, go on the course so I managed to be become a hairdresser within one year
1: wow amazing and and
2: did all my mvq one two and three all in a year like very intensively
1: Goodness me. So that would normally take three years and you condensed it down into a year.
2: Yeah, normally it would take three years and um, you would normally do an apprenticeship somewhere, that kind of thing. But yeah, mm. they did an adult course for kind of, you know, older pet mums, I suppose, and parents uh, mm-hmm. to actually do it in a much shorter time frame. But it was pretty intensive. So wow. they weren't convinced at my age that I could kind of undertake such a thing. But I was pretty determined. And um, yeah. And I ended up kind of getting a um, distinction in the course and helping a lot of other people out. So I think I proved myself.
1: Wow, right. that's amazing. So, that's so yeah. cool. So you, you qualified with hairdressing and yeah. um, you kind of found your, your, your channel, your creative channel. And um, so what did you do then? Did you work in salons or did you go on your own or what did you do?
2: so then I was about 18 and about after about six months working in an independent salon in Exeter I just kind of knew that I needed to get out and and Mm. kind of spread my wings and I was coming to London a lot at that time anyway seeing friends that kind of thing so I moved to London found myself a job with Tony and Guy and um, moved to London and went to a couple of salons and they pointed me in the direction of of joining the main Catonian guy kind of company rather than being in a franchise mm-hmm. so then I joined the main company and uh, started as an apprentice to start with they wanted me to be a um, like work in the salon on the salon floor but I really wanted to come to London and just go out to parties lots and you know like kind of enjoy <laughs> myself and not have too much responsibility so I decided to become like a really good assistant and spent about 18 months just being the best towel folder and you know really like learning from everybody i could watching everybody rather than having to do clients all the time yeah and um within about 18 months i helped them open 12 different salons Wow. in central london it was a time in which tony and guy started a, a diffusion line called essentials mm-hmm. Hair mm-hmm. salon which was run by sasha Moscolo. And Christian, who's Tony's son and daughter. So they were running it. And I just joined the company at just the right time when they were kind of like exploding, essentially. So I joined them when they had three shops. And within a couple of years, they had 12. So within that time, I went from assistant to stylist. And then I wanted to enter some avant-garde hairdressing awards to show people what I could do with my kind of... Had crazy sculptural hair, mm-hmm. so there was a competition at the Royal at the Royal um, Albert Hall to actually do avant garde collection of of hair.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And Tony and Guy weren't really involved with doing that competition at all. So I so I asked Sasha if I could do it, and they allowed me to enter it if it was all off my own back. Yeah. So I entered it, and I actually won that competition. So then from that moment on, I became teacher of avant-garde for Tony and Guy, the whole Essentials brand, and creative director of that. And I was showing collections every year at the Royal Albert Hall.
1: Wow so, how yeah, old I were really, you then then Justin how old were you, you at that 22, point? 22
2: something like that.
1: Blimey I mean yeah. you know it's I, an incredible story you know <laughs> <laughs> a, young, a young lad with orange hair from Devon has, <laughs> is now on the big stage at one of the biggest probably one of the biggest brands in the UK in the hair industry you know yeah. um, that's incredible that's incredible I mean you know that's quite relentless really I mean I know you said you were determined to kind of go and do it but And and obviously somebody somewhere saw your talent. Who was it within that organisation that spotted your ability, would you say? I think I was very supported. I mean, because they had just started the brand
2: essentials, they were looking for, you know, to branch out. So they were growing themselves. Mm. So I entered that company just at the right time. And Sasha and Christian were brilliant at teaching. They had the Tony and Guy Academy set up. Mm. And they wanted to set up the essentials teaching academy alongside it. And then I just joined them, I think, at the right time. And really, you know, I've always been a hard worker. I, I got a job at 13 washing dishes, and I prefer to do that than hanging out with my friends. It's always been more interesting for me to actually be a grafter and a creator, yes. I suppose. Yeah. So then, you know, as soon as I heard about a competition, I, I just wanted to do it. And, yes. um, and it just went from strength to strength. It was just a case of kind of proving myself, showing people my ability, and then just keep, you know, putting myself out there and, and just and working hard, I guess. Yeah, And yeah. with that support of that and then a big name behind you, you know, it just kind of went from strength to strength.
1: Yeah, it's it's yeah. really interesting that. And again, it kind of goes back to the old saying, doesn't it? You know, when people when look, people look at people in different positions, you know, that have reached kind of the top of the game, they say, oh, God, they must be lucky. And the argument to that really is, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get, you know, and that's that's so apparent, especially in our industry, because you do have to put the hours in. You know, you do have to put the slog in. There is lots of late nights, but You know, when you're focused and you're targeted and you want to achieve something, you just get it done. And that's the difference, isn't it, really? Um, That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So how did you go from hairdressing to hats? (laughs) What happened there?
2: So when I was doing the avant-garde hairdressing, the I mean I was supported by the big institution of Tony and Guy anyway. So they were paying for me to do photo shoots yearly, and I was doing avant-garde collections of hairdressing for Sasha, so she could travel the world doing them on stage. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of in the in the workroom, kind of creating these pieces for her. So then and so then she could go off and do them. And then every year the, there's a big hairdressing awards ceremony. So I would enter the hairdressing awards with my avant-garde collections and I became finalist for avant-garde hairdresser of the year twice so that was all in conjunction with me teaching within the academy and I went from avant-garde teacher to colourist teacher and also cutting teacher as well Mm -hmm. and then after about seven years of working for Tony and Guy I kind of felt a bit like I just wanted to do something a bit more on my own I suppose you know doing something under under somebody else's wing is really fantastic but I really wanted to kind of grow and expand more than I had the ability to within the company yeah so um so I decided to leave Tony and Guy and set up my own salon in yeah. Soho and um in at that time I didn't have like Uh, that much of a creative outlet, I suppose. I was doing my clients and that is always really great, but it's only a percentage of my creativity. Mm. So when I was kind of on the cusp of leaving Tony and Guy, I went on a millinery course to try and understand how to do things on the head a bit more balanced and a bit more couture than I was doing before, because I learned a few tips and tricks of what to use in terms of like making avant-garde sculptures you know I was making aeroplanes out of hair and big butterflies and you know it was sculptural anyway but it was very much of a particular medium only so it was very much one way Mm -hmm. so then as soon as I went on my first millinery course the millinery teacher said to me my goodness you've got a gift and I made a bowler hat that was double the height that you normally would make it and it, I just got stuck. I was just like, okay, well, why be in the avant-garde hairdressing world, which is kind of niche and, yeah. you know, in these big places, you have to have a big name behind you and, you know, yeah. all that kind yeah. of stuff that comes with that. And I'm too much of a pirate to kind of deal with that kind of side of things. <laughs> so then the millinery gave me an outlet of kind of really going for my creativity and, and playing with any material. It felt like everything, a culmination of everything that I'd done in my childhood, from candle making to embroidery to making stick men in the garden Mm. and then putting all that into one discipline that still encompassed kind of sitting on the top of the head where your haircut is so kind of bringing out the personality and 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 bringing out the crown of somebody i suppose and, and their real personality but in a sculptural form that allowed me to kind of do something that didn't need to go in a washing machine you know it kind of sat on the top of the head your head is a platform to do whatever you really wanted to do yeah so and then, you know, the materials exploration is endless when it yeah. comes to millinery. Yeah. So that's kind of where the millinery started. And I studied, I was running my hair salon and had a couple of chairs that I was renting out in Soho. So I um, had a kind of a one bedroom flat, essentially that that's kind of size space. There mm. was like a Victorian parlour. So that was doing really well and and kind of growing and I had lots of kind of stuff going on in vogue and lots of people talking about what I was doing because it was kind of quite new at that time. Yeah. Um and this, so then alongside running that I was studying millinery for 7 years. Wow. So I wasn't really doing anything with the millinery other than just studying it and really pushing the boundaries of of the craft. So wow. I started with um, evening classes. Then I went on a part-time course at Kensington and Chelsea College for a HMC mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I learned that there was a, an MA in millinery at the Royal College of Art, and there's only one place a year. So I was like, well, this, it's a no-brainer that I have to do that. Then I... Just went for it. I mean, you know, just I I carried on pushing and pushing and got myself into the Royal College of Art. Wow. um, Yeah. So then two years later, I was coming out of the Royal College of Art with uh, Distinction and they also gave me the finale of the show.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's just amazing. (laughs) I'm just blown away that you just see these things, you just go and you just get in and get it done, you know, and come out with bloody Distinction. That's incredible. That really is fantastic, you know, and, um, it's just again I suppose it's it's just the way that this creativity like you say it just oozes out of you you know and you've just got to put it into something And then I suppose it's the determination and the work like we talked about a few moments ago of making it happen. You know, it it really is quite inspirational Justin, how you've how you you adapt to these things and you just master them. You know, Um, when you were studying then, what was your what were the peers, your peers like in the group? Were there many guys in there? Was it mostly women? What was the split? And, um, you know, what what makes a good milliner?
2: Um. I guess studying millinery, there was a lot more um, women than men studying it right the way Mm -hmm. throughout my study. But I didn't really, I can't say I really noticed like what was going on around me because it was very much like a a personal endeavour, you know. It's like a lot of hard work, but it's also like a major tunnel vision kind of obsession, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then also following your own integrity, so following your own kind of voice an artistic voice on what I wanted to say and why was I kind of saying it so it was just an exploration for me really yeah so um you know it, it was great I was loving studying all the materials when I went to the royal college there was actually one other guy there was two of us that got in and the other guy was a guy called Soren Buck who was actually a hairdresser as well.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay.
2: So there was two of us that went into the millinery from basically having a portfolio that came from the hairdressing world. Yeah, Mine was an avant-garde hairdressing portfolio um, with um, all of the millinery that I had done in all of my courses up to that point. And Mm -hmm. his was a hairdressing portfolio running a salon and doing kind of editorial work.
1: Wow, that's amazing. So,
2: yeah, so we both found the millinery... Like, like that. Mm. So um, in the Royal College, the, my millinery turned into an exploration of, um, it kind of veered more towards product design, to be honest. My final okay. collection was the performative hat. So yeah. it was all about the uh, different performers. I had lots of friends that were performers in London, mm-hmm. kind of circus skilled. So I chose to do my final collection based on each performer's object that they performed with as a wearable object on the head and they would take it off their head and perform with it when
1: they were actually walking down the catwalk. Okay, so you're gonna break that down for me. I'm just trying to visualise, you know. (laughs) So what like jugglers and stuff like that?
2: I should have played you the video, shouldn't I, before we went (laughs) (laughs) went into the interview, but essentially there was a juggler who had a pile of five hats on his head that were all weighted bowler hats so they had weights around the outside of them specifically for juggling there was a fan dancer who had massive great burlesque fans on her head with Mm -hmm. a kind of neck corset coming down into a body corset and she took them off her head and actually performed them on stage wow so there was like a pop-up hat so there was a hat that was kind of like a kind of a kind of dress that was wrapped around somebody, and she let go of it, and it popped up into a massive grey brimmed hat that was about a meter and a half across. Goodness. So each object kind of was 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 a performance based kind of like millinery item, essentially. Wow, you can see the video on. Um, on you can find it on vimeo and and youtube yeah. or even on my website you
1: can see okay it. i'll definitely put that in the show yeah. notes that's really interesting that's so cool that's so cool and again the idea there of of blending hairdressing millinery show business you know and i know i know we're going to talk a little bit about some of your clients because you've got some amazing clients and you've done some amazing things with regards to your um your work so 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 what, at that point you were still hairdressing but you were well into millinery and then what was the point where you started to kind of go over and make it a commercial venture?
2: So it's a very organic process it's very mm-hmm. much like following my own creativity not feeling like I've certainly not followed the money in any way shape or form yeah. what I've been doing yeah and the hairdressing has kind of like supported financially and creatively the Mm -hmm. millinery to flourish you know all of my hair salon clients have embraced and enjoyed watching every step of it some of them have bought some of my hats along the way that's
1: cool um
2: so then after i've left the royal college you know i got a lot of critical acclaim i'm you know i'm really fortunate that my creative work does get accepted a lot by people who really enjoy what i do I put out there. So I ended up in a lot of magazines, loads of interviews. It really exploded really massively. I was kind of all over the place and my work was borrowed all the time. Um, so I was really fortunate that that kind of happened. And then from that moment, I got um, new generation sponsorship from the British Fashion Council. Yeah. And at that time, there was a thing going on called Hedonism, which was supported by Stephen Jones. And it was essentially like a free showroom at London Fashion Week to show mm-hmm. work. So I kind of entered the the fashion world from a hairdressing perspective. I've never been part of fashion. I've never studied or learned fashion as a degree. Mm-hmm. So it was a, definitely a baptism of fire because, you know, I went from having this avant-garde kind of performative hat collection to then having a showroom in London Fashion Week that felt like I should be doing something commercial, I suppose. Yeah. When I had my graduation collection, I I showed in a competition called the ITS competition in, in Trieste and I won two awards there. One of them was to do an eight page spread in ID magazine.
1: Wow, of course, great because it was
2: editorial and it followed my head. Right up your street, yeah, Yeah. right on my street. And then the other one was to do a window display at Maria Louisa in Paris, and she was one of the major boutiques of the time in Paris. So I did a window display there, and they were my first stockist that stopped work. Mm -hmm. So my first collection was kind of an exploration of like what I love about millinery on a kind of commercial level that I suppose people might want to buy. It was an in, it was an interesting roller coaster, really. I was supported for about five years by the British Fashion Council, so I was showing every season. Every season, I did something completely different and completely experimental. One season, I only had enough money to buy a roll of denim, so everything was made of denim. <laughs> but my show my shows were kind of bonkers. The first one was like uh, called Dance with Me, and we made life size dolls that um, a set of performers danced with down the Royal Academy stairs with these dolls strapped to their feet and they both wore vintage outfits and vintage hats. And that was the first collection. So I was kind of starting to get a reputation for kind of Doing crazy shows. The Safari Mm. collection was all denim and there was all like animal sculpture headpieces. And then inside the animal sculpture headpieces were kind of speakers, either animal noises or people talking, saying, looking at the animals. And as you walked around the room, you could hear each hat talking. So it was kind of very installation, (laughs) you know, a bit before the time in which fashion started to do more installations. Yeah. It was quite experimental and it got received quite well, but people thought it was a bit bonkers because (laughs) it was very much uh, more theatrical and much less about wanting to sell. But at the same time, there were some super commercial pieces within the collection and my stockists were growing. Yeah, it was quite visionary. yeah, In the absolutely. Way car. yeah, yeah. yeah, And I mean, I suppose after about five years, I had a good eight, 10 stockist globally, but mm-hmm. it was always really difficult for them because I don't think they could kind of get a handle on what on earth I was doing because I was jumping all over the place with my creativity and I didn't really understand the system of fashion. And to be quite honest, at that age, nor did I care. I was yeah. just, I just doing thing, really doing my thing, and like yeah. really, like you know, like not really worrying about that side of it at all. Yeah, and people would either like it or not like it. And people always used to say I needed to photograph my notebooks on human beings so I could put in all the magazines. And I've always photographed my stuff on wooden head blocks, and I and I still to this day do that. So yeah, you know, I've, I've always had a kind of an image of how I want my work to be seen as art pieces they're kind Mm -hmm. of wearable hats that could be a a knitted beanie made Mm -hmm. into a skull shape or they could be a really crazy top hat that's like a showpiece that's kind of a jewelry piece Mm -hmm. that ends up in a museum but I really want them to be seen as pieces in their own right and not put a face on them you know that's a very different thing selling at fashion week compared to actually the pieces that I make for somebody who's got a face (laughs) which is very much, you know, my bespoke work, you know, that's very much a a dialogue between me and the client. They've they've got their hair growing out of their head. I cut it to suit them because it's their hair. And Mm -hmm. I treat millinery in that respect in a very different way.
1: Okay. I mean, that's that's really interesting, actually. And I I really do want to get onto that, as Justin, about the process with your clients. Because obviously I know that you do a lot of bespoke work. So can you just quickly talk us through how that works, how the process works? I mean... Is your time quite limited? Have you got Have you got plenty of clients kind of coming through, or do you spend uh, How much time do you spend with them in the consultation part? Just like you were doing a hair a haircut, really, I suppose, isn't it? Really
2: like a haircut? Yeah, I mean, after about seven years of showing at fashion week, I realised that that wasn't really for me because I was mm-hmm. making everything in a bespoke nature, but I was trying to sell it as a wholesale product, and I realised and understood what that meant in the fashion industry, mm-hmm. and that the numbers just didn't make sense. I was making like way too couture things, which spent too much time on them. And then they ended up, you know, going into on a shelf, which then they didn't find the person that they were really designed for. Yeah. So then at that point, I decided that I would just kind of like stop doing all all of that, Mm -hmm. which felt quite renegade at the time um, and just go purely into bespoke. So the bespoke nature, I really wanted to just follow more of my dreams. I really wanted to get into film and I've been trying for a long time while I was working in fashion to do more film stuff and more more characterful Mm -hmm. one-off pieces rather than kind of fashion collections, I suppose. Um, Mm -hmm. so then the bespoke came about by just stopping doing a fashion collection and just going, okay, well now I'm going to do collections when I feel it's ready. And that might be every two or three years as an art piece collection, and then really focus on doing bespoke work for individual clients. Mm -hmm. So fortunately at that time when I was kind of having a, I think I need to get out of this industry and find another path for a while, not thinking that the fashion is completely over, but just the next that organic stage. Yeah. I ended up a job with a job um, going to work for Angelina Jolie on the film wow. Maleficent. Wow. Because they had seen all my collections, they had seen my graduation collection, they they had been following my work for a while. Mm-hmm. And the people, the costume designer that was working on it, um, was introduced to me from somebody else who was part of their team. Mm-hmm. And um, Angelina couldn't find anybody who could make the hat that she was looking for to help her find the character that she wanted to say within that
1: film. Okay, that, that's interesting. So she had quite a bit of input in that in that product as such?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Right, yeah, yeah, okay. Definitely, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that some, um, you know, in... In the film world, a lot of actors will will use their costume to find their character. So oh, some of them are happy to wear whatever the costume designer puts on them, and mm-hmm. then others, I believe, really find their character by finding embodying the character somehow. It might be the voice that they find, it might be what they wear. Mm-hmm. And with Angelina, it's a, it's a really massive part, an integral part of her finding her character, and wow. she's very heavily involved with it. But yeah. especially with Maleficent, it was very much you know a character that she really strongly believed in and was really you know it was, it was her project so and she was finding everything was kind of quite theatrical i suppose and she wanted mm. something super edgy and super couture mm. and um at that time i was doing you know millinery but quite new and quite you know un- things people hadn't really seen before it's an, a new yeah. take on on millinery stuff. yeah
1: That's so interesting, man. That really is because, again, you know, you you hear interviews with actors and they go down this method route, don't they, you know, where they just absorb themselves in the character. Mm. But it makes perfect sense that when they put something on, you know, whether that's clothing or a hat, which is a really personal thing, um, to feel confident about and to kind of get into character that's just that's so inspirational that's that's really really cool so you got it you obviously you, you connected with the stylists and, and and obviously Angelina herself Um, who else have you worked with with regards to kind of working at that level of intensity is there anyone else that you that jumps into mind that was, I mean, that was my first
2: first thing into film. I had worked a little bit for some extras for X-Men before that point, but that was mm-hmm. very much working with a costume designer who just commissioned me from my studio, heard about okay. what I was doing and came and commissioned me. So yeah. that was the first time we worked directly with the actor and i went to go and work at pinewood full-time for four months wow like stopping everything i was doing and just focusing purely on that yeah um and then after that point i guess i got a reputation within the film industry that i was doing kind of new and interesting millinery that was kind of you know also being characterful i suppose and yeah super super modern and super couture in a world that i suppose has over time become quite theatrical led people could mm-hmm. get away with n- not so good quality because the cameras weren't so great yeah and then when Maleficent was coming out it was all about high definition and like super close-up shots of somebody's face and suddenly yeah. they don't want something bad encompassing the head because mm-hmm. actually, or like a bit chunky or a bit you know like unrefined I suppose I don't think that's yeah. quite the right word it's not very polite but you know they're really looking for something super couture essentially mm. So then I started to just work in film a lot more alongside doing a lot more bespoke. So there was a, still a lot of projects going on in the fashion industry with doing some catwalk collections for some different people, but I kind of considered that bespoke projects rather than wholesale end of things. Yeah, And then I just did a lot, I've been doing a lot of films ever since then, really. I've worked on wow. Star Wars, two of the wow. Star Wars. But a lot of the hats were in um, number nine, Star Wars. I worked with... Uh, a costume designer called Michael Kaplan who did the first Blade Runner. It's fantastic, really, wow. uh, really inspiring. So it's fantastic to work with the costume designer. And I guess also working within the film industry, it's really great to meet a lot of costume designers and work with a team of fantastic people who are as crazy and as bonkers as me in, in the amount of work and effort that they put into their yeah. discipline. Yeah, yeah. you know, the film is, every single person that works in that film industry is kind of like I am, but I'm the Milliners. So, sure. you know, it was really inspiring to, to work in an industry where you become a, a cog in 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 the parts of it yeah. rather than just a, an island yeah where, you know people are trying to understand what you're doing it's like everybody understands what everybody's doing because they're all complete obsessives about yeah what their discipline is yeah, yeah, like yeah. they're all really hard workers you know and really determined and and want to kind of put it out there to the world and that yeah. is the culmination of every film you know
1: and the team that that film builds so
2: and when, so, when yeah. you're
1: working with those guys, then when you're creating something for Angelina Jolie, when you do that, how do you do your research with regards to kind of getting the authentic product? Do you know what I mean? And, and trying to go back to the essence of the character or the essence of the film. Can you talk us through that process? How, does, how do you work through the styling? That's probably what I'm trying to say, the yeah. styling of a product with the, with the client in mind.
2: I think every job is, is very, very different and independent. So, I mean, that's why I consider it kind of bespoke, because some costume designers will come with drawings and they okay. want you to make that very set thing because it's kind of, it's an iconic star wars silhouette for instance and they might have a particular kind of identity or look that they need to create Mm -hmm. and then other people come with a kind of a rough idea or a mood board or an influence and then they're coming to me for my design level in my particular discipline and area and what i can bring to the table that might take that to a whole new level that they don't work in yeah so it's really you know every film every fashion company that i work with every individual bespoke client it always starts with maybe their dreams or maybe a picture or maybe just a conversation Mm -hmm. or maybe even just their face or their head size or what character they want to create and then from that moment it will then kind of build and be a dialogue okay people were always coming to me because of my design acumen i suppose yeah, you know yeah. and, and my sense of style and and eye and, and what i can bring to the table that's kind of modernizing what they're
1: looking at i suppose yeah. but it's and always how... like a conversation you know yeah sure and, and and what about fits then how do you work fits because obviously you're working with pine wood in the uk what yeah. about the us side of stuff how do you how do you get over the fit issue there um
2: it can work in many ways i mean it can work either uh, one-on-one so a lot of the time I like to be directly on the client if I can but a yes. lot of actors you know they will turn up for a job the day before they're going to start doing it so accessibility yes. is almost impossible. Um, I have did all the hats for Emma Thompson on the Cruella movie that's coming out soon okay. and she was in Scotland and not coming back so she um, for the whole summer so I actually like made up a sample had it sent to her mm-hmm. we had a sample of like the kind of foundation base of the mill was going to be built upon mm-hmm. and then actually had that sent to her she tried it on and from those photos of her taking pictures of wearing that base I can actually translate that pretty much from a photo wow so I suppose that's where my skills kind of have developed over the time in which I've been doing it that somebody can come to me with a photo of their beloved hat that their granddad used to own and it might be a picture of him wearing it or it might be a picture of the hat and I can translate that into the object that is exactly the same so Whoa. from those photos i can t- I send that sample away get it back and then from those photos pretty much get a fit that's pretty good you know and of course whenever you're styling any job whether it be a film or or anything there's always mm. an element of kind of tweaking final stages that needs to be done as well
1: yeah yeah and, um
2: if we can't if i can't have access to the client then there's always somebody within the film industry that can do little tweaks you know that's that's kind of part of it's a collaboration yeah
1: that's so cool that is really yeah. cool so when you're sat in the multiplex cinema (laughs) yeah with your popcorn and you're seeing your hats in like huge like proportion what how are you feeling are you are you critical or are you proud or how are you feeling
2: no I'm usually really critical like the yeah I mean you know I don't feel (laughs) like I've reached the stage at which I'm really happy with my work I mean my work keeps getting better and better yeah I think that my discipline my understanding of my discipline and all artistry, because it isn't just about millinery, but it's kind of moving into so many different areas now. And um, it's just getting better and better. And I certainly don't think I've done my best work yet. But I'm certainly, when I watch a movie, you know, when I first watched the first Maleficent, I was a bit like... You know, it's a little bit of hair there, and there's a little bit of this that, and you know, like my partner is very much like, uh, I think you need to be like a little bit less harsh
1: on yourself. Yeah.
2: But and I've only ever seen it once because actually, okay. like, you know, I kind of watch it. I understand what I want to see for the next one, and then the yeah. next one is the organic process to better what you've done before. Yeah. So so I am quite self-critical in that respect, and I am definitely a perfectionist. Mm. But you kind of have to know, I suppose, when you're making any object, you have to know when to stop. Yeah. And you have to know when yeah. the, it's going to be as good as it's going to get. And then the next time you can learn, use your disciplines to make it a bit of a better object the next yeah. time round. Yeah. So, you've got to yeah. let
1: go, Justin,
0: you've
2: got you to these let these things. Go go, yeah. Know? Cause sometimes you can push it over too far, you know, and that's part of the skill of, At college, I used to run out of the room crying and sometimes I'd remake something or stay up all night and remake (laughs) it because I wasn't happy with it. And there is, you know, there's an element of that that you have to put into your work to be successful in what you do. You know, you have to be determined. Um, But then you also have to learn when to let go and learn to understand what other people can see in your work Mm -hmm. as well. And sometimes that pushing too hard, you can lose in too much perfection. You can lose the essence of something like a nice natural handwriting where somebody's you know doing it organically and and naturally and relaxed rather than trying to force the pen onto the page you know yeah Yeah. so I think you can see that when people make things sometimes things can look a little bit forced or a little bit stiff and you can see the love that goes into
1: any artistry I think yeah and that's
2: important to keep that energy within it.
1: And what, what advice would you give anyone coming into the millinery trade specifically? Is there, any, is there any advice you'd give anybody I mean, off the top of your head other than don't do it or no, maybe not?
2: <laughs> no, I wouldn't say anybody don't do yeah. it. Lots of people are going into millinery yeah. all the time and people yeah. find it through really random ways. You know, I came to it from a hairdressing background. I've known many other different people coming from many different kinds of discipline to come to millinery. I have an assistant working with me at the moment who used to do architecture. Wow! now coming into millinery and found it and loved it so you know it's a very sculptural discipline and it's quite difficult to learn I suppose because of the fact that it's not like pattern cutting or cloth cutting where it's quite specific and then you can create different shapes Mm. there's a lot of different mediums within millinery so there's foundation skills that is really key to know and then from that moment I think it's about for me, it's like a handwriting. I think as many mm-hmm. artists, yeah, we all have handwriting that is unique to us. Yeah. And I think that every milliner finds their path through doing millinery because they want to say something about what they are doing as an artist. So I think and it's who... about following your, you know, what you're inspired by to push it to that next level, what it? and then looking at the techniques that you need to find behind it.
1: Yeah. And who, who in your specific sector then who do you admire who do you look at and you just think oh my gosh I just love what they do I don't know if I would
2: name one particular person purely and simply because I love a lot of design I love mm-hmm. a lot of sculpture I like a lot of fashion yeah um, but I wouldn't say that every fashion collection is a good one mm-hmm. you know every pair of high street jeans isn't a good one but there are some great ones out there so yeah they're very much a case of you know I really love specific objects from collections really Um, and that's what inspires me from fashion or art or even nature you know there's like just about anything that I kind of see comes into my eyes and then I kind of turn it upside down and shake it around a little bit and then add traditional techniques to it and turn it into something new you know and Mm. I think that that is really where we are with creativity these days because everything's been done before and we all get influenced and inspired by what comes in our eyes, Mm -hmm. you know, and then it's my inspiration from coming inside me that and and that thing that I've seen in my eyes to take it to that next stage. you know there's some great milliners out there of course Philip Tracy's you know work is beautiful and and some of his work is just impeccably made you Mm. know Stephen Jones is fantastic for a completely different type of millinery so even those two they're the most you know famous milliners there are but if you look at their their hand in their millinery they're completely opposite so you know I think that I think that I wouldn't rule out many designers to be honest with you because yeah I think everybody has a capacity to do something beautiful yeah and we all have a capacity to do something terrible as well <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: well it, it sounds as if you're <laughs> knocking it out of the park on literally everything that you do i don't know what you're going to be doing next but whatever it is it's going to be brilliant um no honestly it's fantastic and just on that subject um justin what what are you doing next i mean what what has your business going to diversify have you got any ideas So I guess that
2: it's, it, it's, it does feel like it's an organic process. I mean, I'm loving the film work and it's going from strength to strength. I've been doing a lot of TV recently as well as films. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like moving into new new realms and I'm working a lot in America as well as the UK. So that's really great to be involved in different teams doing different types of work. I've been doing a lot of historical drama recently, which is quite a departure from like Maleficent, for instance. Yeah. And then potentially like some new things in sci-fi coming down the line, potentially, I'm not quite sure. You know, it's all very much like things come and go. So, Mm. Um, and then I'm also like working on with my own brand. I do collections every two or three years, but the next collection is very much kind of a sculptural full body, experience <laughs> right <okay. laughs> that's all i'm going to say at the moment okay. but from the, off the back of those pieces there is going to be some production pieces that i'm working with with certain people that is actually taking the production of it to a new level so i'm kind of looking at how i can maybe go back into selling a bit more wholesale yeah because I, you know, always, I don't, it's difficult when you make things by hand to not be elitist and then only certain people can afford your work. Yeah. The people that love your work can't necessarily afford it because you might be a little bit you know this way or that way with your creativity Mm. so i've always wanted to kind of find a happy balance where i can offer something where people can access and buy that will fit them beautifully like a haircut that got they got cut on their head Mm. um but that is actually potentially you know in a shop that they can actually buy accessible yeah that's
1: really cool that's really cool
2: you know it's been another seven years since i finished fashion and now i feel like i'm going back into a bit more of the wholesale side of things but with a a different Eye to it, and, and yeah. a different learning capacity behind what I'm bringing to the table, and and different knowledge. So, yeah, I don't know yeah. where that's going to go, but you know, I love experimenting with it all, and that's part of it. So, the collaborations is is something I used to do a lot, and then I went into film with the collaborations, and now I'm doing a lot in my own personal work as well as Mm. other people's creativity
1: Mm. I think, do you know what, listening to you talk there I think what I really like about your attitude to your business is this fluidity you know, mm -hmm. and you will go with your heart, predominantly Mm -hmm. And she, if you know that's right, then the rest, you know, the rest is going to happen anyway, isn't it? So, um, no, that's really, really cool. You know what, Justin, we, we literally could. Thank goodness there's not a glass of wine here because we would be chatting <laughs> all night. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's so cool. And, you know, to listen from your story going from Devon and, you know, we've we've covered the whole gambit there of, of it's, it's a bit like this is your life. I don't know if you remember <laughs> it that. it's <feels laughs> a bit like that, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, It's better that than an obituary let's put it that <laughs> way <laughs> so but honestly it's been fantastic it really has it's been an absolute joy to find out more about you and your creativity and more about you as a as a person as well you know because when you see product and you and you look at something you can understand the aesthetics of it but it's difficult to really understand the person behind it and that's exactly what this podcast is about you know it's allowing brands and creatives to just just to be themselves and to really explain what they're doing and you've done it so well my friend you've done it really really well so thank you for that and thank you on behalf of the listeners so how can our listeners get in touch with you justin what's the best way for everyone to get in touch directly through my instagram okay uh,
2: j smith squire or directly through my website as well there's a link to to an email there
1: which comes directly to me so so brilliant no, that's cool. That's cool. I'm going to ask you one question that I ask all my guests. So what is it that makes you do what you do, Justin?
2: I love making things with different materials. And I suppose I want to put my work out there to encourage other people to follow their own heart and their own creativity, to to find what, what they really love and what really resonates with them. And And if you find that that balance then it will always wor- work out you know yeah. so yeah. so I'm, and so it's really you know following my own heart and my own creativity has led me to my where i've got to now and i think that i've only just started with where i want to go so yeah. i think that if i can inspire people to follow that path then it would make the world a more more rounded place because we're all following our our emotions and our integrity from the inside rather yeah. than chasing after that particular kind of thing that other people might be happy with us doing or yeah.
0: other yeah.
1: people might like you know yeah. There's, yeah. There's, so no, that's good. It's a great answer. It's a good answer, my friend. <laughs> really good answer. Well, listen, I know you've got um, the rest of your evening to enjoy and thank you for your time. Really thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of your work over the next uh, the next few years. And um, on the on the little screen, the big screen and hopefully in more stores, which will be great. So. All right, my friend. Thanks very much for your time, Justin. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for the invite. Bye. Justin there from Justin Smith Esquire. <laughs> what an absolute talent and a really, really lovely guy to interview. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to know more about hats, he's the man to connect with. Anyway, guys, in the next episode, we meet Alison Lowe, who was awarded the MBE by the Queen for services to the fashion industry. We also talk about blowing the doors off, some of the stereotypes associated with the industry and also her best-selling book, How to Start Your Own Fashion Brand. So if you're new to the industry, don't miss that episode. But that's for next time. So until then, take care and I shall see you soon.
0: Behind the Brands was brought to you in association with beforestores.com. Go check it out. You can discover new brands, meet the makers and their products before they go into stores. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. We'd really appreciate your feedback. You can also subscribe for future episodes by tapping the follow button wherever you get your podcasts. So until next time, keep learning, keep listening. And keep creative.